Don't call it a comeback. The market's been strong for a year. Despite our fears, more records are near. How high can it go? No one knows we know. One day it'll turn and investors will learn that market cycles don't last. We know from the past that sentiment can switch. Sellers start to itch. They'll take their gains. They'll make it rain. We'll blame inflation. We'll blame the Fed. We'll blame those day traders who let it go to their head. But educated investors have seen this before. Nothing lasts forever. We know that for sure. We stay balanced. We don't take our risks to excess. We just keep riding along on the Investopedia Express. Welcome aboard, one and all. The Investopedia Express is brought to you by NewRes. The home buying process can be overwhelming, confusing, and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. NewRes can let you know what to expect and take you through the mortgage process step by step. Learn more at newres.com slash findmyhome. That's newres.com slash findmyhome. Well, just when we think the stock market is getting a little jumpy, it finds another leg higher. Last Thursday's sell-off turned into Friday's buying opportunity, and that's the way it's been all year. We've not seen a 5% dip in the S&P 500 in more than nine months, but we've seen more than 50 new records for the benchmark index during that time. As we keep saying, it's a different kind of rally this summer than the one we saw last summer. While last year's was a recovery rally from the depths of the market's lows in late March of 2020, this one is rotating from sector to sector. Transports, industrials, energy, and financials led the pack to start out the year, but now technology is back in pole position with the mega caps reasserting their dominance. Amazon and Apple alone are up more than 10% in the past month, far outpacing the broader market. As those stocks go, so goes the stock market. We know that market breadth is weakening. We know there are fewer stocks making all-time highs, even as the Dow, the NASDAQ, and the S&P 500 make new records. We know the advanced decline lines show more stocks falling than rising at the moment, but we are back to living in the land of the giants. And when the mega caps rally, they drag the market-weighted indexes like the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 higher with them. If you're an index investor, you love this. If you're a stock picker, it's a little tougher right now. But not all investors are trying to beat the market. According to S&P Dow Jones Indices, investors parked a record $5.4 trillion in passive index funds at the end of 2020. They've just been along for the ride. Jack Bogle would approve. And this is a big shift in investor behavior compared to the great financial crisis of 2008. According to Sam Rowe at Axios, at the end of 2008, there was just $915 billion worth of assets indexed to the S&P 500. But passive indexing has been pretty popular lately. Assets indexed to the S&P 500 jumped by almost 500% to $5.4 trillion last year as the index itself tripled and the pros are having a hard time keeping up. About 60% of large cap equity fund managers underperformed the S&P 500 in 2020, according to another report from S&P Dow Jones Indices. That was the 11th straight year that a majority of those professional stock pickers lagged the benchmark index. What are we paying them for again? If you're wondering why Vanguard, Fidelity, and BlackRock have a combined $27 trillion in assets under management, now you know. Let's get set up for the week ahead. Who's ready for some quarterly report cards? Earnings season starts this week, and brace yourself for some big year-over-year sales and profit growth. Analysts polled by FactSet are expecting a 52% rise in earnings per share on average for the S&P 500 from a year ago. Don't expect too much of a reaction in the stock market for those shiny digits. Investors were way ahead of this one. The big banks will kick off reporting their quarter of the results this week. We'll hear from banks including Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, and Citigroup, among others. 
banks still face an extremely low interest rate environment, which means their net interest margins will continue to remain under pressure. Remember, those net interest margins are the net interest income a bank generates from credit products like loans and mortgages, with the outgoing interest it pays holders of savings accounts and certificates of deposit. Those paltry margins haven't been a problem for banks yet because they've been making a lot of money on trading profits, underwriting, and signing up new accounts. But trading volumes are slowing down and interest rates are still pretty low. It could be a challenging rest of the year for the financial sector. Delta Airlines will be the first major airline to report results due out this Wednesday. After a devastating 2020, airlines are back in business, and if you've flown lately like I have, they are packing the passengers in, overselling flights, and handing out a lot of clean wipes. On the economic front, it's all about the consumer this week as we get the consumer price index and retail sales reports for June. We know those inflationary pressures the past few months have backed consumers off of their spring spending spree. Consumer prices popped 5% in May, the biggest annual jump since 2008. That caused buyers to back off their spending, but remember what Lizanne Saunders of Schwab told us a few weeks ago on the show. The spending is shifting from goods to services. We are traveling more, we're eating out more. That's where the job growth is, and that's where the spending is, and that could be a strong sign for more economic growth. We'll also keep our eyes on big tech this week. Last Friday, President Biden signed a broad executive order aimed at promoting competitive markets across the U.S. economy and limiting corporate dominance that the White House says puts consumers, workers, and smaller companies at a disadvantage. The Biden administration is laying out a roadmap for crafting the first antitrust regulations for these massive internet and communications companies that have basically come to dominate the way we live, work, amuse ourselves, and communicate. It will fall to the Federal Trade Commission and other regulators to put actual laws in place and that won't be easy. Big investors know that, and they seem pretty unfazed by it all given the performance of stocks like Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook. If I had to put together an all-star baseball team of the great business journalists of the past 50 years, Andy Serwer would be my shortstop and captain of the team. He's the editor-in-chief of Yahoo Finance, the former editor-in-chief of Fortune, where he worked for nearly three decades, a best-selling author, and one of the shining stars of our industry. He's also our very special guest today on The Express. Welcome aboard, Captain. Thank you very much, Caleb, and thank you for that very flattering introduction. I'm quite sure I don't deserve it. You don't, but I give it to you anyway. No, I do admire you and I have for years. For the folks who don't already know, Yahoo Finance is the heavyweight in digital business news. The biggest site with the most traffic, a loyal audience of tens of millions of investors, and data for days. How would you explain the mission of Yahoo Finance, Andy? What's your North Star over there? Thanks, Caleb. Yahoo Finance, as you said, we are the biggest. We've got about 105 million monthly unique users and about 10 to 12 million daily average users. Obviously, that's a huge audience, and they want all things to do with investing and business news, as you say, both the content and the data. And we're really sort of a democratizing force in investing. And and we'll probably talk about that a little bit because that's very au courant. But we were sort of the original gangsters of that in that finance was basically something that belonged either to Wall Street, of course, and behind closed doors, or from a media standpoint, places like the Wall Street Journal and, well, going back before there was Bloomberg, Reuters, and those sorts of organizations, Forbes and Fortune, where I worked. And they were, you know, let's face it, they were elitist to a degree. And so our mission, we've been around for 25 years, has been to 
bring an understanding of business news and markets to people. And I think that we've done a pretty good job. I mean, people before me, of course, have built this great platform and, you know, hats off to them. Yeah. And everybody uses it, even if you're just using it for the data, or if you just want news or just watching Yahoo Finance TV, which has become very, very good under your leadership. So it has become an impressive platform and it's been that way for years. Andy, you and I have covered several business news cycles in our careers, but nothing like the past year. What surprised you most about investor behavior and also about the way companies responded to this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, there was a, so much that happened going back to the beginning of 2020, Caleb. I mean, first of all, the pandemic and then the way that the markets responded, the economy responded, human beings responded, the implications, the fallout, the stay at home trade the at-work trade, and the fact that fangs, the fang stocks, of course, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, the way they responded and the way those companies fared so well, the vaccine, the vaccine companies, healthcare, and it really was unprecedented. And then it sort of segued into the fall where it looked like there was hope and we were going to be able to have a vaccine that was going to be effective and so fast. It was amazing. And then going into this year where we had, you know, the resurgence of crypto and the meme stock phenomena, which speaks to this democratization part de, if you will, which we can talk about. So it's just been an extraordinary 15 or 16 months. And you're right, both of us have seen a number of cycles, but this is unlike anything we've ever seen before. I've noticed, and you've probably seen the same thing, that that everything seems so compressed and extreme, right? The downturn, the 35% drop in the S&P 500, and then the rebound, the 75% rebound seems so quick. Companies basically almost folding and then getting this resurgence of either business or capital, cheap capital, and coming back out of it with a lot of strength, not everyone, of course. But it just seemed like the timelines were really slammed together and things were happening so quickly. Did you notice that as well from your perch? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, more information, more technology means more speed. And on the one hand, oh, it's seductive because you want to get in and out and trade. On the other hand, sort of the old rules do apply, Caleb, which is, the, you know, buy and hold. And sure, if you were looking at the third week of March, I think it was March 21st was the, the low of 2020. And looking at stock prices and just coulda, shoulda, woulda bought stocks on that day. It was just been a massive run up since then. On the other hand, buying and holding throughout this whole time period has worked really, really well also. And again, the performance, the outperformance by the tech stocks and what that's done, it's another huge topic right now, of course, which is not just income inequality, Kayla, but I think more important is wealth inequality. And that's been a theme that's been ongoing for years now, but it got exacerbated with we're also aware and we all oh, we want to address it and this and that, but it only got worse last year with sort of no end in sight. I mean, the Biden administration is trying to address it, but it's going to be very, very difficult to unwind that. Absolutely. And we saw this in the last 2008, 2009, actually in 1999, 2000 as well. If you had equity, if you owned stocks, if you owned your home, if you had capital, you did great coming out of this as long as you didn't make any foolish moves. But if you didn't, and so many people didn't, they're just on the other part of the K-shaped recovery, which makes it so challenging for everyone to sort of participate in a recovery because it's not a recovery for everybody, as we well know. 
You talked about the democratization of finance. We've seen technology really open up investing to everybody with platforms like Robinhood, but then the, all the online brokers really went to, to free trading, no commissions on trading. It's easier than ever to invest or trade. And we know that you know Robinhood alone added 10 million new customers to its platform, but so did the other online brokers. They added millions of people. We have a lot more market participants, Andy, but a lot of them, as you know, are gambling and trading stocks, not investing for the long term. What concerns you about the fact that it's so easy now to get involved and be a market participant and these platforms sort of encourage it? Well, what concerns me is what I don't know, Caleb. Again, you know, it's like, it's pretty obvious that there's frothiness and craziness and insanity and things that are unsustainable. And it began, you know, the meme stock phenomenon, which was, is tied in. It's all of a piece with the fintech brokers, the new entrants highlighted by Robinhood, and then the commission-free trading you spoke of. The business model is based on payment for order flow. We just saw a story in the Wall Street Journal about how Robinhood derives 81% of its revenue, which may or may not be a bad thing. I think it's not understood enough, but it's something, you know. again, the unintended consequences. The other thing, of course, too, is the buy and buy the slice part of stocks. And it's ironic, isn't it, that Warren Buffett was the first person, really not the first person, but was one of the first people and a very visible person not to split the stock, right? Because he said, I only want long-term shareholders in Berkshire Hathaway. I don't want people trading in and out. When you split stocks, splitting stocks is just sort of a gimmick. Well, and then a lot of people emulated him, Google. In fact, it became the thing to do in Silicon Valley for those big companies not to split their stocks or not to do it as much as, as typical. I mean, the typical company, you know, stock gets to 100, they split it, right? But the consequences of that, and again, this unintended consequences is so huge, is that people were able to create these products where you can buy a slice of Google undermining this strategy of not splitting the stock. And that fueled more speculation in the market. So it had the exact reverse consequence of what these CEOs wanted to do. They wanted to create a stable market for their shares. And in fact, it's created more speculation. I find this unintended consequence theme so very important. And then this whole meme stock phenomenon with GameStop and AMC and all the rest of them is truly unprecedented. And, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you just got to like understand that your stock's not going to go to the moon to use their phrase. And if it did, you just were, your timing was good. And that's probably about it. And, you know, Reddit and WSB, Wall Street Bets as a force in the markets. I mean, who saw that coming? Right. Who knew the power of those platforms and the ability to, A, it's the technology, it's free to trade, it's easier than ever to access the markets. You can buy fractional shares, as you alluded to. And then you have this sort of sideline cheering coming from these online forums, making people want to buy. But as you know, only a very few people actually make money in those trades and they get out before everybody else is able to get out the exit door. So that never really ends well for everybody. And, and that's what worries me as well. How would you describe the phase we're in now? And what do you think comes next? I'm asking you to look into your crystal ball. It's hard for us as journalists because we're in the moment, but where do you think we are now? And what do you think the rest of the year holds for investors in particular? Well, I think that this sort of concern about inflation is legitimate over the shorter term. And I'll get back to that. But I think the Fed's support of our economy is obviously 
a key driver here. And at some point, there's got to be like a taking away of the punch bowl, to use the Fed's language there, before the party gets out of hand, because things are accelerating. The rate of change over change. Now, there's weakness in Europe. There's weakness in Latin America. Asia is not at all opened up. And there's variance. So it's not a straight shot. I mean, that's why, you know, we're the best place right now in the United States. And that's happened before. And, you know, it's happening again. So I think we're in the middle of liftoff. And we have to make sure the rocket safely leaves the atmosphere and doesn't blow up to overextend the metaphor. Apologies there, Caleb. And I think if I can just go back to the inflation thing, I think that, you know, we're in an inflationary period because of wages right now. And, you know, I say money to the people on that one, you know, where I stand. But I think that over time, which is to say the intermediate time period, say two to three years, technology is such a massive deflationary force in our society, in our economy, that I just don't see inflation really taking hold because technology reduces the cost of absolutely everything in our lives, making clothes, drilling for oil, shopping, buying beer, cars, transportation. I mean, just so it's hard. How are you going to raise prices? Now, people should get paid more. But other than that, how are you going to raise prices? You've interviewed thousands of executives in your career for cover stories at Fortune or for your terrific interview series at Yahoo called Influencers. Folks, you need to check that out if you really want to learn from great executives and investors. What are two or three common traits, Andy, that all great business leaders possess? You've talked to so many in your career. Yeah, that's really hard. I think that they are always open to new ideas, Caleb. And that may sound trite or obvious or axiomatic, but believe me, I found that we're all much more closed-minded than we like to think we are. So I think that on the one hand, open to new ideas. On the other hand, you know, these are people who are really driven in a very different way than the rest of us. And they are very, very focused in a way that the rest of us aren't. They don't get distracted. I think also just this notion of being able to make the right calls, just judgment is so incredibly important. A lot of people I find in business, there are a lot of BS artists and we see them all over the place. And people, I call them LUs, which are loud and unequivocal. And they use that to mask, perhaps unconsciously or subconsciously, their ineptitude. But the people who are consistently making great judgments are rare. And most people are just below trend or trend And they're only as good as the market around them. But people who are actually able to beat it are extraordinary people. Great point. And I remember a conversation I had with Charlie Munger, one of my favorite investors of all time. He's only, what, 96 or 97 years old right now. He said to me, the people who don't have the capacity for change or to change their minds, he has no room in his life for them. And this is a guy who's seen it all and made billions of dollars. So that is such a key point, being able to see other points of view and actually take incorporate those and make changes. You've interviewed thousands of great investors too, from Buffett and Munger to John Malone and others. What are two or three traits that they all possess as well? Is it a similar track for them? Do they have some of those same instincts that you mentioned that great executives have? Yeah, I don't know. It seems like there's this sort of intuition that those people have, which maybe gets back to my judgment point, Caleb. But I think I would pick focus. Uh, You know, like, it's amazing. Like, if you go to Berkshire Hathaway and the annual meeting, you see, you know, there's tens of thousands of people listening to every single word Warren Buffett says. And 
he talks about some very basic things. Now, don't kid yourself. A lot of what Warren Buffett does is very sophisticated. I mean, when it comes to insurance, like he's miles ahead of the average person or even the above average insurance executive. But some of the stuff is very fundamental. And then you find yourself just, you know, you take it down, you write it down, you pound your head, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And then you find yourself doing just the opposite, you know, which is to say, buying high, like, yeah, I'm finally going to go in and buy this thing. Or, you know, selling when, oh, the market's gone to hell, I'm going to sell. And those things are just wrong. On the other hand, Buffett will tell you, it's like, it's buy an index fund and a couple things you believe in, right? And I think that's really the best investing advice possible. I mean, great American growth stocks, you just see these things. And a lot of times they're expensive. Starbucks is always expensive. Costco's always expensive. And if you can buy on March 20, 21st of 2020, more power to you. But at some point, you know, you often just need to just bite the bullet, and buy 100 shares and know that it's going to go down next month. But over the next 10 years, you'll be fine. Stay committed. And you're right. You're never going to time it right. So few people have the ability to do that. And they would admit that they're lucky as well. Who's your favorite interview, Andy? I know you've interviewed thousands of people, but are there one or two that stick out where you're, you were just you know, dying to interview that person? You had a great sit down with them and it was just as fulfilling as you thought it would be. Well, I really enjoyed my interviews with Steve Jobs. And even though my relationship with him was very stormy, he screamed at me, cursed at me, called me names on several occasions, didn't like what I was doing. But I have to say, there is no one that would surprise you or keep you on your toes like him. He would say, you know, I remember one time talking about the Grateful Dead. I love the Grateful Dead. Okay, great. On the other hand, you know, we're looking at a video together one time and he said, this is terrible. Who did this? Who made this? This is like the worst thing I've ever seen. And it was a colleague of mine sitting right next to us, you know, and it was awkward doesn't begin to describe and uncomfortable. But he was someone who was unequivocal, but right many more times than he was wrong. Not perfect at all. Remember, all these people are not perfect. Warren Buffett. Oh, newspapers are great forever. You know, he didn't say forever, but he goes, this is such a great business, such a great business until it wasn't. Coca-Cola is fantastic. You know, this is a great product. Well, they've had their difficulties selling sugar water. And with Steve Jobs, I remember him saying, renting music, people want to own their own music, you know, which is totally dispelling the Spotify model and the Pandora model, which have, you know, worked out really, really well at the expense of Apple Music. Now, Apple Music is still a huge, major, major force, but they're not always right, but they're certainly right more times than they're wrong. And they're able to make tremendous bank on that. And you've mentored so many great journalists in your career, and I've learned so much from watching you and reading your work. What would you tell aspiring business journalists to learn today if they want to build a successful career in our industry? Technology are table stakes right now, right? So you have to be able to use CMS. You have to be able to use analytics. You have to understand social media and audience development. But that just comes with the territory. I mean, the old rules still apply. And by those, I mean, your word is your bond. There's a lot of places where you will find you're going to be asked to compromise in your work. And you really can't do that. And by that, I don't mean not listening to an editor. <laughs> That's not, that, there, there is room to compromise there. I'm talking about a, a source. Well, can you change this for me? Can you change? There's just a million things. You know, I'm not saying you can't work with people and get things done. But, you know, you have to be able to draw the line somewhere. And 
you have to be paranoid. You know, why are people telling me this? Is this really true? Is this really true? And then finally, you need to be able to tell a story. And I know the whole, I'm a storyteller has become so cliched and it just makes me gack when I hear people say, oh, I, I tell story, you know, okay, fine. I mean, again, that's sort of table stakes, but I really mean that in that you can't just say that on LinkedIn. You really have to be able to tell a story. You have to be able to tell a yarn. And I tell people, it's like you're in a bar and you're telling Caleb Silver a story. You know, you have to be able to do that. And I was like, well, I've heard people tell me so many times, I don't think this is very interesting, but I'm going to do it anyway because I think other people, no. If you don't, you're your own best litmus test. If it's not interesting to you, how the hell are you going to make it interesting to someone else? Or why would someone else find it interesting? That's kind of my, my stuff, I think. That's a great point. And, and you've been so good at that, but you've also been such a great editor to so many great storytellers. You, you mentioned Sean Tully, there's Carol Loomis, there's Bethany McLean. There's so many journalists that have come through working with you that have gone on to do great things. And, and of course, you've done great work yourself. I really appreciate the time. And, and again, I've learned so much from watching you and your career. And thanks so much for joining The Express. It was really a delight to have you here. Thank you, Caleb. And by the way, just a quick note, I'm not sure any of those people really learned that much from me. I learned a lot from them, but, but you're very kind. And thank you very, very much for having me on. I appreciate it. It's terminology time. Time for educated investors to smarten up with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Juan in Miami, Florida. I love that city, especially the food. Juan suggests float as this week's term of the week, and we like that suggestion because it actually has multiple meanings in finance. According to my favorite website, float is money within the banking system that is briefly counted twice due to time gaps in registering a deposit or withdrawal. These time gaps were usually due to the delay in processing paper checks back when we mostly used paper checks. But even with the electronic transfer of money, there's a lag time between when money is in limbo or floating. A bank credits a customer's account as soon as money is deposited. However, it takes some time to process that payment from the payer's bank and record it. Until it clears, the account is drawn on, the amount it is written for exists in two different places, appearing in the accounts of both the recipients and the payer's banks. In the insurance world, float is similar but has some key differences that allow big insurance companies like the ones owned by Berkshire Hathaway to hold and invest policy owners' money any way they want. Here's Warren Buffett explaining float to one of his investors at Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting back in the 1980s. In the insurance business, a similar phenomenon takes place in that policyholders give us their money at the start of the the policy period and therefore we we get the money paid in advance for the product. And secondly, it takes time to settle losses, particularly in the liability area. If if, if you if you bang up a fender on your car, you, it's going to get settled very quickly. So there's but if if there's a, a complicated injury or something, it may take some years to settle. And during that period we hold the money. Great suggestion, Juan. A pair of those midnight blue Investopedia socks are on their way to you, and we'd like to see you sporting those on Calle Ocho. Send us a picture. We'll let Dame Ellen MacArthur take us out this week. MacArthur is the founder of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation in the UK, and she's one of the leading proponents of the circular economy. My wife, who's a conservation scientist, has been sharing some really good research about the circular economy, and I think it's fascinating and really important for everyone to understand that there are other options to our linear economy, the one we've been living in since the Industrial Revolution. That one relies on us producing and consuming goods and products only to discard them and move on to the next thing. Here's Dave MacArthur explaining what the circular economy is. 
The circular economy is a fundamentally different economic model. It's taking the entire global economy, looking at it through a different lens and saying, how can we valorize our economy to a higher level? So never at any point would anything made within a circular economy become waste. Everything would be designed so the materials within them can ultimately be valorized, but they can also be kept at their highest utility at all times. If you want to hear more of this, check out the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and see the video series on the World Economic Forum's website on the circular economy. We'll see if we can get Dave MacArthur on the Express one day. Special thanks to Nurez for sponsoring the Investopedia Express. If you're ready to buy a new home, the right resources can make a big difference. From finding your dream home to navigating the mortgage process, Nurez has you covered for all your home buying needs. Learn more at nurez.com slash buy my home. That's nurez.com slash buy my home. We'll talk to you again a little further on down the line.